Support for the following podcast comes from the free event Church Mental Health Summit. Over 50 speakers from around the world are coming together to equip the local church to support mental health in their churches and communities. To register for free, go to churchmentalhealthsummit.com. I have been in many church communities where I have asked for my access needs to be met, and I have been told that no one else needs that but me, or it's too expensive, or no one wants to change it, or they can't change it because it would be prohibitive or it would take too much time. And just think about what that communicates to people, that disabled people are not worth the cost of inclusion and nothing could be further from the truth. From Hope Made Strong, this is the Care Ministry Podcast, a show about equipping ministry leaders and transforming communities through care. Supporting those in your church and community not only changes individuals' lives, but it grows and strengthens the church. But we want to do that without burning out. So listen in as we learn about tools, strategies, and resources that will equip your team and strengthen hope. I'm Laura Howe, and welcome to the show. Today, we are talking with author and advocate Amy Kenny, and her book, My Body is Not a Prayer Request. I was in my late teens and my church at the time was in a building project. It was a really exciting time for our church. Uh, We were growing. It seemed like every week there was a new family joining. And for some, our small town church might seem small at 500, but for our rural community here in Canada, 500 was a big deal. Like that was a really big deal for us. At the time I was part of a school of ministry and I can remember the conversations about the design of the new church building that we were making or building. (laughs) I wasn't in those conversations per se. I was just a kid in the ministry school, but I distinctly remember when I heard that they had made the decision to make the children's ministry rooms in the basement and to not put in an elevator. The thought was that they would do that in phase two. There was a spot designated for the elevator, and there was an agreement that children could be carried downstairs if needed. Now, I am not demonizing this church. I still love them deeply. The fact that they made plans to put in an elevator in the future and ensure that there was full accessibility to enter the building and have accessibility in bathrooms on the main floor is much more than many churches. The leaders had really hard decisions to make. They were facing a tremendous amount of constraints. They had land size, so they only had to build up and down rather than out. There was finances, and every ministry had a very long wish list. They did the best that they could with the information and the resource that they had at the time. But 20 years later, there is still no elevator. But if you take a moment and reflect on your church, you can probably see how decisions have been made around access. And it doesn't matter if those decisions were intentional or not. In fact, I was in a church recently and I overheard a conversation around the admin about soap in the ladies' washroom. I know it seems silly, but conversation was about whether the soap should be scented or not. That conversation then led on to whether they should use air fresheners in the building. And the decision was made that they are not a scent-free building. So they're going to keep the scented soap and perhaps even the air fresheners because it's better than the bathroom smell or the kids ministry wing after a busy Sunday. 
And again, I'm not trying to point out, bully, or demonize, or put down these decisions, but I had recorded the podcast with Amy several weeks ago, and it had caused me to rethink how we create spaces that are accessible and welcoming for everyone. So this conversation about the scent really stood out in my mind. This conversation with Amy, I couldn't shake it. And even today, I still think about it whenever I'm making decisions or talking with churches. You know these kinds of conversations, the one that open your eyes to ideas and thoughts that you really never considered before. And at the same time, it gently poked areas in my life that I need to change. And I'm excited for you to listen in. But let me warn you, this episode might live in your head for a little while and might make you rethink what it means to create accessible spaces and how to offer care and support in a way that is welcoming for everyone. Like myself, you might be challenged in how you do ministry. And this challenge is a gift. It's not meant to confront or bring shame to anyone. But as you are making ministry decisions, you will be more aware of the needs of those with disabilities, and you'll be able to make a more informed decision. My hope is that by listening to the conversation that Amy and I had, you will grow your awareness and we can become churches that are welcoming to all. Amy is originally from Australia. She studied in the UK now and now resides in California. But growing up in Australia, her parents believed that it was really important to ensure that their home was a welcoming place for all. Amy recalls that there would be friends staying for dinner quite often or community members who were struggling with addiction and homelessness or even co-workers joining them for dinner. As an introvert, it felt like there was always a lot of people around, but the value of community and creating safe places and welcoming spaces was sewed into Amy's life. Amy studied literature, Shakespeare actually in particular, and found that while the theatrics and drama were entertaining, it was the community and how storytelling allows us to step into the lives of others and have compassion for them. I did go to school to study Shakespeare and I sometimes Is that what you went to England for? I did, yeah. Oh, that's um, so cool. I sometimes say that I am a Shakespeare lecturer who hates Hamlet. And <laughs> I think that really what interested me about Shakespeare, yes, it's exciting that there's blood and guts and drama and that's always fun to read and watch and and teach but more than that I think it's this idea of allowing for us to have compassion for someone mm. who isn't ourselves mm. and really learning the depths of someone's story and trying to get to what motivates them and how they feel right. in a certain moment whether or not we can relate to whatever the story may be and I think that sense of a shared humanity was what interested me in studying literature. So growing up or going to school for literature and Shakespeare and those shared experiences, that has really, it sounds like that's really have informed what, you know, your book is about and your experiences today, um, that shared humanity and experiences. Can you tell me, for people who are listening, uh, where the inspiration from your newest book came from? So my book is titled, My Body is Not a Prayer Request, and it's about my experiences as a disabled woman in church spaces. I grew up in and around the church and, and was often 
prayed for without my consent. And often it was assumed that I wanted to be prayed away or that something about my body mind needed to be changed simply because I'm disabled. And so the book is kind of an answer back to that in a loving, um, in a loving kind of clap back way to <laughs> invite readers into thinking about some of their assumptions about disability mm-hmm. And also to thinking about that shared humanity, that whether or not you identify as disabled, that we all have a shared humanity and too often disabled folks are not treated as fully human. Mm, That's so true. That is so true. And can you share a couple of experiences that you had that um, would, that many people might see or participate in or have in their church that may not even realize that this is how it makes those who are disabled feel. Yeah. Anytime I have heard disability preached on or talked about, it's been in a negative way. Mm -hmm. It has been assumed that disabled people should be erased or eradicated, that disability is connected to sin or suffering And even when disabled people are used in metaphors and songs and liturgies, it's always in a negative sense. I don't ever remember throughout my entire life being involved in church. I don't ever remember a time where disability was connected to blessing or gifting or the prophetic witness that we see that it is in scripture or in our lives. And While I think most people I have been in and around church with are really well-intentioned and wouldn't meaning like, wouldn't be, wouldn't mean to (laughs) be harmful to disabled neighbors, the outcome is still the same. It's really harmful to be told Sunday in and Sunday out that you and your body mind are connected to sin, suffering, and that everyone wants you erased. That there's a lack, innate lack or something yeah. missing, that you're not valued as who you are. There's a piece of you that is um, a, a weakness, a failure or sin. And it's not true. Yeah. And so many people have said that right to my face. I mean, so many people wow. have said what sin is preventing you from getting up and walking. So many people have attempted to give me curatives. So everything from essential oils to <laughs> kale to hit your leg with a hammer. Somehow I'm still disabled and I can laugh about it because of therapy and community <laughs> who love and support me. But I think really it's harmful to receive the assumptions of a whole community of people who think that they would rather be dead than live in your body mind. And that's something that people tell me directly very frequently. And that's really harmful. If we think about the fact that disabled people are 26% of the U S population and 15% of the global population, that means that people are trying to erase a quarter of us. That's a really harmful and horrific thing to be preaching. And we oft, I don't often go to a political and I am Canadian, so I'm not a citizen of the U S but being an observer of the recent overturn of Roe versus Wade and the conversation about pro-life 
this is a similar conversation where if you're racing or minimizing or devaluing someone's life because of their disabled, that's not what God says about life. That's life is value in all, in all forms. Those who are listening are often uh, care pastors, care coordinators, and, and ministry leaders who are on the supporting side of those, of, of church members and community. Is there an example of, of a church or a method that you would say, this is, a, this is a gold standard, this is an exemplary way of how to support those with disabilities? Uh, do you speak about that in your book or do you, do you have examples of what that would be? Yeah, in the final chapter in my book in particular, I really turn to what my hopes are of what church could be. And it's not something I have experienced, but I give a glimpse of what I think that kind of accessible great banquet could look like that we hear about in scripture from Jesus's description in Luke 14. And I also in my book give a lot of practical ways for church communities to apply the knowledge that I'm sharing. Because I realized that it can be really heavy Mm -hmm. and it can be, it can be overwhelming to receive so much of my story and to receive some of the harm that churches have done. And it can feel as though we're just small and we're powerless and that's not true. And so the book is also an invitation to here are some practical steps that you can take as a church community or as an individual to make sure that you are actually welcoming disabled people. What are some of those practical steps? If you can, I don't want to give away the book. So maybe just one or two. (laughs) I think something really important is to learn from the wisdom of disabled people. We are so, yeah, we are so often pitied. We are so often condescended to. We're typically not seen as leaders, preachers, pastors, caregivers, people who you can learn from. And all too often we are, if we're thought about at all, we are thought about in a way that means that there is ministry done to us, not with us and from us and in community with us. Mm. So really learn from the wisdom of disabled people, read our books, hire us as speakers and trainers, hire disability consultants, do an accessibility audit with someone who is trained to do that and really learn from our understanding of what the sacred community can be and also who and what God can be. That's so good. It's not just building a ramp. It's not just having um, positions of chairs. It's a culture. It's looking at systemically what does access look like? I was speaking with with a pastor who uh, was was trying to gently challenge him in rethinking of how the Sunday service is. And this particular church um, was talking, it's often um, dark in the auditorium with lights and, and, you know, the noises, the the music and sounds quite loud. And just thinking from a trauma-informed approach, this is going to be, this type of experience is going to be different for someone who has trauma versus someone who doesn't. We know that many people have trauma. And so I'm more familiar with that side, but can you tell me what are the elements that people look at for an accessibility 
um, study because I think it's a it's a different lens that you're putting on. And I'm going to be honest with you and Valdemar saying that while I looked at accessibility from maybe a surface level, I've never really looked into it more deeply. And I would love to learn from you. Yeah, and this is why it's so important is that unless people have been trained to specifically examine it or unless people have lived experience being disabled and know what to look for for their own disabilities, it's too often it just goes unnoticed and people don't even realize, oh, we're excluding a large portion of the population because we don't have a ramp, we only have stairs, or because we don't have a sensory room, or because we don't have captions or an ASL interpreter, or because we are forcing people to inhabit a particular body in a particular space and time and way. Think about liturgies that tell you you have to stand and sit and kneel and do a particular position instead of inviting people to have freedom in their own body minds. It's about the width of bathroom stalls and aisles. It's about the lights and the colors and the scents. It's about making sure that a diverse range of disabilities are accommodated and to make sure that when disabled people ask for our access needs to be met, that that is met not with critique or condemnation, mm. but rather with an openness and a willingness to change. And I think that's one of the biggest pieces that's a take home for folks is that I have been in many church communities where I have asked for my access needs to be met. And I have been told that no one else needs that, but me, or it's too expensive or no one wants to change it, or they can't change it because it would be prohibitive or it would take too much time. And just think about what that communicates to people that disabled people are not worth the cost of inclusion and nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. In thinking of where to start, if I was a, a most churches are smaller, there are a couple hundred people or, or perhaps even less, where are some easy wins? Like what, what is there, getting your book, reading your story, listening to those practical or reading those practical um, applications and then what is kind of the first step in in making church more accessible to those who have disabilities yeah I think doing an accessibility audit can be really helpful that uh, um, there are resources for that online that are free you can also pay someone to do an accessibility audit and it goes through everything from getting in the church to getting around the church to attitudes and it really makes you grapple with what accessibility means, that it's generally much richer than most people have really considered, or they don't realize, oh, we don't have very many disabled people that I know about in my community because we're completely inaccessible. So those two things are related to one another. So I think that's a, a, a first step. I think another one is really just to start doing the internal work of unlearning your ableism. We have been led to believe that ableism, discrimination against disabled people, thinking that there's a hierarchy of bodies, that that is something that happens out there, but not at my church, not at, not my friends, not my group, right? And actually, 
in reality, it's, it's more accurate, I think, to say that we have all been so immersed in the system of ableism that most of us have it and don't realize how it comes out in our language, assumptions, and practices. So it's really important to start doing that internal work for yourself and in your sphere of influence. And it's not to shame anyone for unintentional, unintentional ableism, but rather to name that it's harmful to disabled people to hear our body minds used as slurs, as metaphors, as examples of something that you don't want to be. So a very quick and easy example in my life is that lots of people say lame as a slur. I am lame. I cannot walk many days. I use a wheelchair to get around and a cane and I am an ambulatory wheelchair user. I am lame. It's not a nice feeling to be everyone's example of something that's gross or undesirable. Zero out of five (laughs) stars would not recommend. And usually when I ask folks not to use that word, I'm told I'm being too sensitive or it's not a big deal. And so just little things like that, it's not so much about the word itself, but the assumptions behind it. So doing an accessibility audit and then really starting to unlearn your ableism in your language, your assumptions, and your practices. When you mentioned using examples as something you don't want to be and in scripture and in in different storytelling examples that happen often in services. I'm like, oh my goodness, you are so right. It's often considered um, a negative or derogatory or something that is unwanted. And and when I look around my church and, and think about that, definitely feeling, you know, convicted in a good way, as I should be, to saying, okay, what does that mean for our church? And what does that mean for our accessibility and how welcoming we are. Most people listening and myself included want to be open and create safe places for people so that they feel, you know, that they're part of the community, that they belong, that they matter and that there's hope in Christ. And if we're not creating a space for people to come and hear that or see that or experience that, then you're really disqualifying or removing 26% of our population. Yeah. Yeah. It's huge. Yeah. And one of the frustrating parts is that here in the United States, churches can legally discriminate against disabled people because they fought against the Americans with Disabilities Act when it was signed into law in 1990. So they are actually not required to have accessible bathrooms, curb cuts, sensory rooms, interpreters, and the like. And that sends a really harmful message to our disability community that we already know that you don't have to have us there because some churches fought against us being there. So how much more important is it then to be the change in your community and to make sure that your community is welcoming of disabled people, not just in name or idea, but actually in practice? So often in culture, in, in church culture and secular in the world, we um, distort scriptures or we select a scripture to, to fit our perspective. But Christ is compassionate and, and uh, advocate of life and freedom. So what are some scriptures that you 
that you are your go-tos when people are saying, mm, but is, how can we do this? Is this, you know, obviously, you know, God wants us to connect and meet with all people and go into all the world. And, and but where do you see in scripture that the compassion and, and hope and love of Christ is for those who are disabled? Yeah, I think about this accessible banquet in Luke 14, and Jesus is telling people, go out quickly and invite disabled people and poor people to this banquet. And there's no talk of cure. There's no talk of condemnation. They are simply welcomed and accommodated. And it's actually said that there is enough for everyone because disabled people and poor people are welcomed first. Now, that banquet is usually taken to be eschatology. It's usually taken to be a symbol or an image of new creation. And there we are, disabled people and poor people and non-disabled people dining together in an accessible banquet that accommodates us all. That's a really important passage to me. Another important one is thinking about Jacob in Genesis and the way that Jacob's wrestling with this angel figure um, actually disables him. And that's not glossed as something negative or sinful or bad. It's connected to his blessing. And he thinks of that as an experience with God that is generous and that allows for him to transform into being able to witness his brother as an image bearer. And There are many characters throughout scripture that are disabled, everyone from Jacob to Jesus, Moses to Paul. And I think one of the invitations of my book and hopefully of this podcast is to actually think about disability in scripture. Too often it is erased when we talk about scripture or we just pretend it isn't there, even though it is. So I think that making sure that we are reading what's there and inviting for us to rethink some of the assumptions we have about disability when we're reading it. Disability isn't something throughout scripture that has to be changed all the time. In that accessible banquet, it's we're simply welcomed. No qualifying terms required, just welcomed as you are. Exactly that that's such a good reminder that you know so often people think of that you know I need more than you know or I need to I need to be more like Christ although that's true but we we need to be more patient or more or more loving or more this or smarter or have more degrees or all of we we always have this image of being not enough but no matter who you are disabled or not, we are as we are accepted and loved and beloved. And that's so, so beautiful. So beautiful. I think that's really one of the gifts of disability and one of the gains that it's not, disability is so often thought of as a loss, but I, I have experienced it as a gain in my life because it has really taught me that I am valued And I have dignity and worth simply because I am an image bearer of the creator of the universe. It is too often that we say that, 
But then in practice, we only really value people because of their accolades, because of their resumes, their accomplishments. And it's great to have accomplishments, congrats. But that's not what gives us dignity and worth. Mm -hmm. And being disabled reminds me that it's not me hustling or proving myself that endows me with worth. I simply have worth on days where I can't get dressed by myself, on days where I need assistance to do basic tasks, because my disabled body mind is made in the image of the divine. So beautiful. I love that. Thinking back to your younger self, having gone through the suffering, the struggles, the trauma, the experiences, the the highs, the joys, and the lows. Thinking back, if you could write yourself a letter or send yourself an email, what would you tell your younger self? I'd need more than a letter. (laughs) (laughs) I'd have a lot to say to her, but I think it could all be summarized with, you are enough. I think I spent a lot of time probably because of internalized ableism, probably because of the cultures that I grew up in. I spent a lot of time trying to prove that I was worthy of belonging and care and really needed to discover for myself that that was true all along, regardless of what I achieved or how much I ticked off a to-do list any day. So I think I would tell her that you are enough, just as you are. You don't need to prove anyone wrong or do anything to earn care and belonging. You are enough. I love that. Thank you so much, Amy. Thank you so much for sharing your story, for writing this, for all of us to learn and grow from. And I so value and appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Laura. Hey, thanks for listening. I encourage you to put what you've heard into action today. How are you going to be intentional about building a culture of care for both yourself and for others in your church? And don't forget to check out Amy's book, My Body Is Not a Prayer Request, and we're going to link that in the show notes. And of course, if you want to be reminded when an episode goes live, make sure you subscribe. Thanks for connecting. Take care.